I'm just going to come out and make a bold statement. Shakespeare is important, right? Right? Right. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Okay, I know you agree with me that Shakespeare is important, vital even, but in a lot of places, what we take for granted is becoming, shall we say, less clear. There is, once again, fear in some quarters about what's being called the death of Shakespeare on American college campuses. But this isn't like the uproar during the Reagan administration. Back then, the charge was that Shakespeare was being swept away out of antipathy toward dead white male writers. These days, it's said, the blame can be laid on the feet of university economics. I won't go into the argument too deeply here because it's the topic of a new comic novel by our guest, Julie Schumacher. She's the author of 2014's Dear Committee Members, winner of the Thurber Prize for American Humor. The New Yorker magazine called it, quote, a comic aria of crankiness, disillusionment, and futility, unquote, all focused on an English professor at fictional Payne University named Jason Fitker. Julie Schumacher's new book is called The Shakespeare Requirement. In it, Fitker is the newly appointed chair of the Department of English, and the crankiness, disillusionment, and futility are now at least partially, focused on what his university is trying to do to Shakespeare. We call this podcast, Mark the Manor of His Teaching. Julie Schumacher is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Julie, I am so happy to have you here because that means I can ask you to read for us from your book. And before you do, if you could first tell us about this character whose mind we're going to be dipping into, this Shakespeare scholar, Dennis Cassavan. Yes. Uh, professor Cassavan is the professor of the English department in Payne, who has been in English the longest of any other faculty member. And he's a traditionalist. He's a bit fusty, but he has a lot of dignity. And he very much wants to defend the idea of undergraduates in English being required to take at least one semester of Shakespeare. Great. I can see him in his tweeds now. <laughs> okay. <Good. laughs> I, think, I think we're ready for the reading. Lincoln Young had been right about the department's new statement of vision. The document, purported to be an outline or overview of the department's purpose, was distressing proof that Cassavan's laissez-faire attitude toward his academic unit had come at a cost. After Lincoln handed over his time card and slumped out of the office, Cassavan had spent the hours he normally would have dedicated to refining his syllabus to a squinting consultation with his computer screen. The proposed new SOV made no mention of Shakespeare, but referred in broadly meaningless terms to inquiry, professionalization, engagement, and a multiplicity of perspectives in a globalized world. It might as well have been the statement of vision for the Department of Health Sciences or Phys Ed. Should the statement be subjected to a vote and approved, the result would be a scattershot curriculum almost entirely devoid of tradition or history, and the undergraduate student majoring in English would no longer be required to take a course, not even one, in the works of Shakespeare. Cassavan closed his eyes for a moment, feeling ill. The very marrow of the discipline would be expunged, 
He had to hold himself partly responsible. During the year he had been on sabbatical, he had scarcely glanced at the daily deluge of e-correspondence or the minutes of meetings. But now, email by email, he followed a months-long electronic rabbit trail, which revealed that, in addition to electing Jason Fitger chair of the department, a hodgepodge of exhausted colleagues had collectively assembled this impossible document, as if dragging a one-legged blind man through multiple layers of the committee system. Perhaps the intent had been to obey some bizarre directive from above, but the outcome was, for the students, an irresponsible freedom. No need for the English major to familiarize him or herself with Chaucer or Milton, let alone Spencer or Dunn, all of whose works had been discarded in an earlier purge. Now Shakespeare himself was to be lobbed like a tidbit of refuse into the bin. And what might Payne's young literary scholars study instead? Bracing himself, Cassavan returned to the course catalog. Upcoming classes included Aliens and Outlaws, Marxism 2.5, the American soap and the telenovela, and the literature of deviation. How was a student to make any sense of it? Shakespeare was the cornerstone, the fountainhead. To allow an undergraduate English major to earn a diploma without studying Hamlet and Lear and either Julius Caesar or Antony and Cleopatra was on the part of the faculty an abdication. Read whatever you like. We aren't here to offer intellectual guidance, our field is a come-what-may experience. Anything goes. Julie Schumacher, thank you so much for that. Thank you. I have to say I'd love to take an English class on aliens and outlaws. <laughs> <laughs> or the literature of deviation. Um, I, so clearly we're talking here and you're, you're spoofing this ongoing debate uh, about core curriculum. But there's another layer, and it's about this SOV, the statement of vision and, and really the corporatization of, of academia. I think the corporatization and the bureaucratization, the way in which it seems difficult to get things accomplished because of the need for just lots of layers of difficult <laughs> administrative uh, overlap. And in your novel, the, the English department has to get this statement of vision together because without it, uh, I mean, it has real consequences. The department doesn't have a budget. And so in the case of the English department, they can't even uh, fix their window unit air conditioner. <laughs> they can't <laughs> get stationary. They're filching stationary from other departments, filching staplers, getting supplies from other people's closets. Because, yeah, they don't have a budget. And that's tied to the statement of vision. Right. And comedy ensues. And their their budget is in part being withheld because of the evil, the villainous economist upstairs, Roland Gladwell, who is um, kind of, I suppose, a representative of all the things that might want to crush the arts and humanities in higher ed. Yeah, he, he's kind of the, the rainmaker, right? And there seems to be <laughs> always one. Maybe they don't always come from the economics department, but there's always one in a university or a college who, who can really play this corporatization game to their benefit, um, kind of the Silicon Valley invasion of education. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I wanted to play with the idea of also the, the way in which people are just wildly enthusiastic about all things science, technology, engineering, and math versus taking classes in, you know, literature, art, philosophy, classics, religion, history. Some people 
ought to be pushed toward poetry, for example. Why not? <laughs> Why not? You have a great description of those people, the kind of the, the people who can really roll with this corporatization of the academy. And you describe them as the brawny networking businessmen and women who knew nothing <laughs> of students and who would turn the teaching of undergraduates into ill-paid incidental labor. <laughs> there I was going after the increasing trend in hiring adjunct faculty rather than tenure track. And I don't mean to just in any way lamb-based universities. I think they are in a really difficult position these days. The cost of tuition is very high. Students are increasingly looking skeptically at higher ed or deciding to go to a two-year college and then transfer because the money is um, daunting and it's a huge problem. And universities are responding sometimes by you know, hiring lower-paid temporary faculty, and also by seeking money from corporate donors. Right. And as a, a foil to this, you have uh, both the department head, who you've written about in your previous novel, Jason Fitger, who's, mm-hmm. who's I mean, he, his heart is in the right place, but he's a hard person. I don't know. He's a hard person to <laughs> like, but you must have a lot of affection for him if, if you stuck I do by lo- him. I love Fitger. I did. I, I stuck by him in part because... Um, he is, he's so flawed. He so cares about the things that I care about, the arts and humanities and higher ed and his students. But he goes about it in um, <laughs> probably the least effective of ways. He completely lacks tact. He lacks all diplomatic skill. He's a rotten he, administrator. Yeah, he's a rotten administrator. He, he always has food on his face or his clothes or his <laughs> teeth. I mean, he's kind of he a does. mess. Well, you know, uh, people in the academy are not known generally for <laughs> being natty dressers. And then there's Catherine, uh, the this elderly Shakespeare, you know, die-hard holdout. And he's insisting on having a Shakespeare requirement in the statement of vision, even though plenty of other writers aren't mentioned specifically in it, maybe none. Had you planned all along to write a book about a Shakespeare requirement? No, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. I um with the first book, Dear Committee Members, the only thing I was thinking when I began the novel was, would it be possible to write? a whole book in the form of letters of recommendation. I just thought it would be an amusing puzzle to see if I could pull it off. And Fitger arose from my desire to to figure that puzzle out. So when I began the second book, I knew I would make Fitger the chair in the second book, but I was looking for some sort of structure to hang things on, hang the plot on. And I was in a faculty meeting one day when the idea of Shakespeare as a requirement came up, A colleague sitting next to me said, um, oh, at my previous institution, we had a year-long fight about the Shakespeare requirement, and I hope to God we aren't going to get into that here. And it just felt like a little light bulb went on in my head, and I thought the Shakespeare requirement, that could be something that Fitker's department at Payne University would fight about for an entire year. It It would give me a year's plot and structure for the novel. And it gives us an hour's worth of things to talk about because, first of all, (laughs) does this mean your college where where you work doesn't have a Shakespeare requirement? Actually, at the University of Minnesota, we do require that undergrad English majors take a semester of Shakespeare. But most colleges, including most in the Ivies and at top-tier liberal arts colleges, no longer require – have that requirement. Even for the major? 
even for the major. Okay, let's talk about that. Is that a dividing line <laughs> still? Well, you know, it's probably um, a tail end of the culture wars from the you know 70s, 80s, 90s. It's um, I am not a Shakespeare scholar and don't feel like I really have a, a dog in this fight. But um, one of the things I did was um, I prevailed upon a colleague who's a Shakespearean to visit her class and quiz her undergrads about their feelings on Shakespeare. And I asked them at one point, should Shakespeare be required for undergrad English majors? And um, they divided very tidily into two camps, about 50-50. First half said um, they thought that it was ridiculous for an English major to be required to take a semester's worth of instruction in the work of one author, one white male author, dead 500 and some years. Why not include Shakespeare in you know, an early theater course or Shakespeare and Milton or Shakespeare, Chaucer, Dunn or some combination of the above? That there were so many works to study as an English major that to take an entire semester in one author didn't necessarily seem like the best of plans. The other 50% said, no, they, they thought that every discipline should have a structure to it, some sort of sense of a foundation, what one studies first and then second. In, in the sciences, there's a certain ladder, a curricular ladder that one climbs, and that if there were no such ladder in English, what you would be looking at as a curriculum would simply be a, a bunch of electives. And um, even if Shakespeare wasn't necessarily an ideal or the perfect foundation, he was a logical foundation. And um, got to start somewhere. This was a good starting point. It would give a structure to the discipline. That's pretty impressive class. I mean, I think you could say they're, they're representative. Uh, I guess my question is, what, what's new or different about this conversation? Well, I think, um, you know, the humanities take a bashing from the um, general public sometimes that you'll hear people say, well, I don't want my son or daughter who's going off to college to be spending his or her time studying stuff that, you know, isn't going to get him a job. So heck with Shakespeare. Um, Let's get with something more current or more modern, communications class, a technical writing class, uh, business writing, leadership something that will get my child a, a job. And on the other hand, then English can be bashed for trying to be too relevant, too responsive to the desire for what is shiny and new. So hence the, the class on, you know, the telenovela <laughs> in the passage that I read or the literature of deviation. Um, and there's also it, the diversity debate. and the, the Sure, there's the, the, the diversity debate. Yeah, mm-hmm. so should we be doing Shakespeare and Robert Frost and uh, Willa Cather and all these white authors when there are many, many other voices that should be heard? I have to say here, my, I have two kids, and neither of them went to liberal arts colleges. Mm-hmm. Both of them were looking very much towards one's an engineer and one's in um, uh, industrial design. Mm-hmm. And it's a conversation we've had over and over again in our family. I mean, it really goes to the heart of, I think, economic anxiety in our culture, too. Definitely, definitely. And again, you know, we not want and need engineers. We we want and need doctors and dentists. But to me, it seems a bit short-sighted or narrow to look at the job market and think, 
okay, I'm going to get a business degree or an accounting degree because that will get me a job. We don't know what the job market is going to look like 10 years from now. I suppose we will always need engineers. Sure, why not? But we don't know what's going to happen with computers in the next 10 years, what's going to happen with, you know, Amazon (laughs) taking over the world. Um, And I think that to go to college thinking only of the marketplace rather than about being an educated, informed person in the world, a person who can think creatively, have an imagination. People should know something about art and about history and um, politics and everything else. We don't want to be narrow. We don't want to think narrowly. We want to be imaginative thinkers, every single one of us. Well, I don't want to stray too far away for too long from Shakespeare. Uh, so <laughs> in the context of, of all that is going on within, in the academy, does Shakespeare still embody kind of the man, the pinnacle of the, the patriarchy of civilization or the established order? Is that what you're playing with in, in with Casavan and, and his fight for the requirement, you know, a voice I think for of, those old ways of thinking? I think so. I mean, Casavan is a traditionalist and he's a, he is fusty. Um, Fitker called him a mossback. But he also is really standing up for something he believes in. He's not just fighting for his job. He's able to retire. He's fairly well on in years. He could retire, but he fears that a way of life and a way of thinking and scholarship is going to disappear if he doesn't stay on watch. He and Fitker, I think, would not in general disagree terribly about Shakespeare, except that Fitker is worried about his budget. And uh, there's a scene in which Fitker says to Cassavan, you don't understand, I am fighting for the department's survival here. You know, I, I need money. I need you to agree about this statement of vision on the Shakespeare requirement. And Cassavan responds to him by saying, I'm fighting for the department's soul. And I think both of them are being sincere and they're trying to do what they can in very difficult circumstances. But yeah, to Cassavan, Shakespeare embodies, you know, all that is good in history and scholarship and literature and the study of English. And the life of the mind and the soul, and the life of the as mind. you say. And we're, we're talking very about very um, serious things, but it, you you managed to work in some uh, hilarity in, with a plot twist that involves a campaign by the Payne College newspaper, student <laughs> newspaper, and they've brew, and something brewed up by Casimir's own research assistant, and uh, they come up with this Save Our Shakespeare campaign, SOS. And <laughs> what's great about it is that every political campaign really does need a hero or a, f- a scapegoat, and Shakespeare becomes the face of this campaign. And so where does Shakespeare, I mean, in the broader sense, fit into all of this debate about core curriculum now? Is Shakespeare front and center in these conversations? I don't know whether he uh, Shakespeare is front and center in um, the conversations at every school, but again, I do know that it has been dropped at a good number of schools. We hold on to it at Minnesota, and um, I did have great fun with the Save Our Shakespeare campaign because at first, Cassavan is delighted that students will, he thinks, rally around you know, the idea of Shakespeare being a requirement, but soon he discovers that rather than rallying around Shakespeare per se, 
they're just sort of printing buttons and, and protesting right. things in general. <laughs> right. uh, they it's love not the, about... the mechanics of the protest. <laughs> yes, and his grad student is trying to make money by selling Shakespeare buttons, which start to come out in in many strange forms that are not making Cassivan very happy. Well, getting back to your own personal experience, you teach uh, creative writing, mm-hmm. MFA program. What do your students expect uh, will happen after they get their degree? What, 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 val- what do they think an English major or an MFA brings them in the marketplace? Well, there are all kinds of, um, <laughs> you know, you see these flyers and posters. What can one do with an English major? And, um, you know, we talk a lot in our department about positions that students have gone on to handle, nonprofit work, radio, um, <laughs> podcasts, fundraising, development, law. There are a zillion firms that would like to hire, I think, people who can think on their feet and write clearly. Writing clearly, I can tell you from teaching lots of writing from freshmen to seniors to graduate students, um, writing clearly is something that is becoming a rare skill these days. They're used to texting one another, to peppering their emails with emoticons, but actually writing persuasive or glorious prose, that's a rare skill. And is that what they're coming into the program to learn? I mean, what are their expectations? I think, you know, the reason Shakespeare and other all other literature is going to keep surviving and keep being of interest to people is that people still love and need narrative. They need stories. There, We have, in one form or another, whether it's on Netflix or in King Lear, we crave an artistic depiction of the human experience. That desire is never going to go anywhere. And I think the students that come into both our creative writing and our English classes, that's what they're there for. They remember how marvelous it was to lie in a hammock and immerse themselves in a work of literature. There is nothing, there's nothing like that feeling. People think of literature as an escape from the real world, but, you know, you read (laughs) Romeo and Juliet or Lear or Othello, and there can be the pleasure in escape while you're immersed in the reading experience, but there's also the feeling that you've gained some insight into the human condition that can't be found by, um, you know, taking a statistics class. I'm curious, after writing this character, Casavan, and and thinking, I mean, your book is about a lot of other things besides the the Shakespeare requirement, but it, it, it certainly, some thought has gone on your part into that. Have you had any new ideas or come out the other end thinking differently about whether Shakespeare should be a requirement? (laughs) <laughs> Again, I usually duck that question by saying I, I don't have a dog in that fight. Um, but And I did have to admit <laughs> somewhat sheepishly that after having written the Shakespeare requirement that I never took a Shakespeare class in college. I was a Spanish and Latin American studies major, so I was busy reading uh, The Quixote and Garcia Marquez and um, never got around to taking a Shakespeare class. I have to confess that on your Well, here's the place to confess. (laughs) Don't don't feel bad. I don't think you're alone. Um, Have you read Shakespeare or do you just go go see it? Okay. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. You know, the the tragedies are the ones I I glom onto. And I think 
those maybe have um, infiltrated both of these academic satires more than anything else because people think about these two novels, Dear Committee Members and The Shakespeare Requirement, as satires and comedies. But I think both of them at, at the core are pretty sad. People who are sliding downhill and trying desperately to hold on. That is the way with satire, right? You, you're talking about reality. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned earlier universities that are doing away not just with Shakespeare requirements, but with, you know, arts and humanities classes. And there's a good example um, nearby in the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, that has, because of financial difficulties, proposed cutting majors in English history, philosophy, romance languages, and other disciplines as well. And that to me is just mind-boggling. If you're going to call yourself a university rather than a technical college, you can't cut a history major. How is that possible? History, English, philosophy, religion, it just it boggles the mind. What is it like to work on a college campus as a novelist who skewers academia? I mean, are, are your colleagues always worried you're, you're taking notes at, at cocktail parties? Or, or do, do they think that your books are all about them? Or, or do they read themselves into characters that aren't even about them? I was pretty careful to avoid um, depicting anybody that I know. I really didn't want to go there. I love my colleagues. I have a great job. But people have said to me when we had our first faculty meeting, my Shakespeare colleague said to me, I hope this meeting isn't going to be like the one in your book. <laughs> so um, the interesting thing is um, the amount of feedback I've gotten from people I don't know at all who have found me on email to tell me about their experience in academia across the academic disciplines. Just um, a couple days ago, I got an email from a faculty person who said, um, my sincere gratitude for your two books, which have saved me from or at least temporarily staved off abject insanity. <laughs> so I think there's there's some catharsis <laughs> that the books offer to people who are in the teaching professions, not just in higher ed, but um, I got after Dear Committee Members a huge number of letters from people teaching English teachers in um, high school who probably write more letters of reference than anyone else on the planet. Well, it was a lot of fun reading the book. Thank you for that, and thank you for the conversation. Thanks very much. Julie Schumacher is a professor of English and creative writing at the University of Minnesota. Her book, Dear Committee Members, won the Thurber Prize for American Humor. Her new novel, The Shakespeare Requirement, was published by Doubleday in 2018. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Mark the Manor of His Teaching was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Randy Johnson and Steve Griffith at Minnesota Public Radio in St. Paul. There's something I'd like to ask you to do. It's something I ask on every episode of Shakespeare Unlimited, and I'd like to explain why. A lot of the podcasting platforms decide which podcasts to recommend by looking at the ones that have the most reviews and ratings by their listeners. So, if you like Shakespeare Unlimited and you'd like to tell others how good it is, please rate and review this podcast. I'm really grateful for your help. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. 
Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself in Washington, D.C., come visit us at the Folger on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with a first folio, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks again for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.